0: Welcome to the latest episode in our Contentious Regulatory podcast series. I'm Sarah Cody, Counsel in Linklater's Financial Regulation Practice. I'm joined today by Alison Wilson. Why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Alison Wilson. I'm Linklater's Global Head of Dispute Resolution, uh, and I'm also a member of our Contentious Regulatory Partner Team. In its strategy for 2022-25,
0: published in early April, the FCA sets out its plan to improve the redress framework, maintaining that ensuring customers have appropriate access to redress when things go wrong is a key element of its duty to protect consumers from harm.
1: So in this podcast, we're going to outline the FCA's powers to order firms to pay redress, to trace the journey of their use by the FCA and to pose some questions about how those powers might be used in the future.
0: Alison, before we get into the details of how it has been used, it's worth saying, I think, that the power to order or encourage firms to pay redress is obviously a really important part of the FCA's toolkit when it comes to remedying consumer harm, which is central to its consumer protection objective.
1: That's absolutely right. And you won't find me disagreeing with the principle that firms should be required to put things right where they've caused harm. And I think we only have to look at the budgets that big firms put into proactive remediation to see that they take that obligation seriously too. Uh, But I do think there are some important questions about the sensible limits and regulatory expectations in this context, which are worthy of exploration. And we'll get to those later in this podcast. We certainly will. But let's start by looking
0: at the FCA's powers here. So the FCA has the administrative power to order restitution under Section 384, as well as power to apply to the courts for restitution orders under Sections 382 and 383 of FISMA. Chapter 11 of the Enforcement Guide explains when and how the FCA might make use of those powers and considers the interaction of those powers with other remedies available to customers. Those include, of course, the FOSS, which we see flexing its muscles somewhat unpredictably in a variety of contexts at the same time as its jurisdiction for SMEs has been expanded and its compensation limits raised. In addition, we have the statutory FSCS scheme, consumer address schemes constituted under FISMA, voluntary remediation. However, that voluntariness may be procured and court remedies. And more recently, we've seen the creation of new redress mechanisms, for example, the BBRS and judge-led reviews at individual institutions. So it's a pretty extensive suite of tools. And the use of these powers in an enforcement context is nothing new, is it?
1: No, that's absolutely right. So I, I would say that the roots can be traced back to uh, the case of uh, Genker in 2011, uh, where Mr. Genker was ordered to pay a restitution order of some $3 million. Pounds to the counterparty, which lost out through his market abuse, as well as a significant fine, and that was then followed by two very familiar uh, to practitioner market abuse final notices uh, where statutory restitution was ordered under section 384. Um, rather than voluntary remediation being agreed. So first we saw um, the Gavin Breeze final notice in 2016, and then uh, perhaps more significantly in terms of market profile in 2017, uh, the Tesco case. Um, The Tesco final notice was notable, of course, for no FCA fine being levied against Tesco, although it created a false and misleading impression Um, And that was because Tesco had paid a penalty under a separate uh, deferred prosecution agreement it entered into with the SFO uh, in relation to the same conduct.
0: But we haven't just seen restitution ordered in a market abuse context, or even by just relying on Section 384. We began to see the rise of large scale and hugely expensive voluntary remediation and redress schemes in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008. A classic example of that is remediation for PPI mis-selling, where the total industry-wide remediation paid from 2011 to date now exceeds $40 and that's excluding the extensive administration costs. So whilst this generous remediation didn't stop the FCA pursuing a number of high-profile enforcement actions, we did see the extent of remediation being cited as a mitigating factor and reducing the penalties levied in that context.
1: That's absolutely right, Sarah. And I think another case that's worth mentioning here in that context is the now somewhat controversial interest rate hedging products, uh, IRHP uh, redress scheme. And that was agreed through bilateral undertakings with the affected banks and then supervised um, by skilled persons. That's right. And that's something which has
0: been in the spotlight again recently following the TSC scrutiny and the recent SWIFT review.
1: Yeah, that's right. And whilst um, Swift did ultimately recognise that a voluntary scheme was reasonable, given the criticisms he made about the way the IRHP scheme was constituted and decisions within that scheme were taken, and the breadth of the recommendations Swift makes uh, about the scope, the operation and the transparency of that particular scheme, I think we'll probably see significant regulatory caution before agreeing a scheme in that way again. It's worth noting that the FCA has accepted the recommendation SWIFT made, that due consideration should be given to use of its statutory powers under Section 404. Um, Of course, giving something due consideration doesn't mean that we will necessarily see that power used, although I should note in that light uh, that the FCA is currently consulting on a Section 404 Industry wide scheme, um, relating to, um, the British steel pension schemes. Uh, but I think also we're, we're likely to see a broader debate around the use of that power in a way that we just haven't, uh, up till now. And I think at a minimum, based on the responses that we've seen to SWIFT's recommendations, I think it's likely that firms will uh, be asked to uh, formalise any voluntary agreements through some kind of statutory mechanism. And that could be, uh, for example, either the imposition of a voluntary requirement or a voluntary variation of, of permissions.
0: So it's fair to say that the FCA's experiences of ordering redress certainly haven't been without their issues. And picking up on that voluntary theme, in 2020 we got the Redcentric and Aviva final notices. Both of these related to misleading market statements. And whilst Redcentric was publicly censured, neither was penalised in respect of its false and misleading market statements in the light of their voluntary redress schemes.
1: That's right, and we're certainly now seeing many more instances of remediation being agreed in the context of uh, Principle Six and Principle Seven breaches in the retail se- sector. Uh, and, of course, that fits with the FCA's consumer protection objective that we mentioned right at the start of this podcast and the FCA's desire to ensure that customers who suffer harm are compensated. So looking
0: back at this, I think it's fair to say that voluntary redress and remediation were the hallmark of the last decade. But what about the FCA's statutory redress powers? Alison, have these been used at all?
1: Yeah, these have absolutely continued to bubble away in the background. So um, we saw a mixture of statutory redress being ordered against Vanquist in 2018, and that was for principle six and principle seven breaches. And at the same time, uh, voluntary redress was was also paid and that, that voluntary redress related to a period um, in the company's activity before the FCA took on consumer re- credit regulation. And at the same time, we've seen uh, the High Court ordering restitution on a number of occasions to depositors in respect of certain unauthorised schemes. Yes, and this judicial scrutiny
0: looks set to continue. So the recent Bluecrest Tribunal reference of the FCA's decision to order it to pay redress will consider the limits of the Section 384 power. And it's particularly interesting that this is being referred, given an extensive compensation scheme has already been ordered by the SEC, together with a significant civil penalty.
1: So that's been a brief step through the history of the FCA's use of its restitution powers to date, but now in the next section of this podcast, let's move on to look at some of the questions that its current practice raises uh, for the future use of this power. So Sarah, what themes have we seen in recent enforcement decisions where redress has either been ordered or offered voluntarily? Well, we're starting to see an increasingly
0: expansive view of what losses an apparently deep pocketed bank should cover. So, the recent Barclays final notice in connection with the losses caused by Premier FX is a really good example of this. You'll recall that Premier FX had undertaken deposit taking and investment dealing without the necessary permissions. Barclays, as its primary banker, was found to have breached Principle 2 in its ongoing AML and EDD checks. Barclays provided voluntary redress to compensate all customer losses, notwithstanding the fact the FCA accepted that Barclays was not the primary factor in the customer's
1: losses and, in fact, had no direct relationship with the customers in question. So from reading that final notice, one might reasonably ask, I guess, whether banks are now to be considered as providing some kind of insurance against rogue firms, perhaps even looking at the facts of that case, rogue firms that were themselves authorized and supervised by the FCA.
0: I think that's a very reasonable question to ask, yes. Uh,
1: And I would say uh, that I think similar questions can be raised in connection with topics such as APP, so authorised push payment fraud, uh, and also the approach that the FOS um, seems to be adopting to Section 140 CCA claims. Uh, We're seeing those in respect to products such as uh, timeshares and and solar panels. Uh, And I think these um, fact situations are interesting because the protagonists have largely gone out of business Uh, And the FOS is now looking to affix the credit institutions with resulting customer losses, uh, and that seems to be irrespective of their limited role in the processes in question.
0: On the other hand, and perhaps more positively from a firm perspective, we also see a fairly expansive and creative view to the type of redress that might be taken into account by the FCA informing its view on penalty. So if you look at the recent Credit Suisse Tunabonds decision, we saw the FCA taking into account debt forgiveness of sums in dispute in the ongoing civil proceedings in Mozambique as a mitigating factor in connection with penalty. And this was something quite outside the FCA's purview, and we actually saw it give dollar for dollar credit for that in reduction of the penalty.
1: So, drawing this together, I think then that there are a few themes which merit further consideration. So first, just how far will the regulator, or indeed the FOS, expect banks to go in compensating customers where the banks were not the primary actor? Or indeed, they may have got something wrong, but there was no obvious customer detriment flowing from the breach. When you look at Section 384 of FSMA and its explanatory notes, they're clear that a causal link between the action and the loss are required. Uh, Yet what we're seeing, I think, is a relatively broad brush approach in practice to that question of causation, particularly where the redress appears to be being offered on a voluntary basis. And I'm particularly interested to see how that evolves when the new consumer duty is introduced. So what will be deemed to be a good outcome for retail customers under the new principle 12 in a remediation context? I think when you look at the Barclays final notice, it suggests that that may well extend beyond the firm's own customers with few apparent limits on causation secondly most firms would i think find it helpful to
0: understand what principles are guiding the fca's use of restitution in an enforcement context particularly when and how financial penalties will be imposed where remediation has been provided so it's difficult to predict at the moment when restitution will result in either no disgorgement or a small mitigation discount and when it has no apparent impact at all on the outcome The FCA will argue of course that this is all fact specific but I don't think that can be the complete answer.
1: Yeah that's right that's an interesting question Sarah and I think thirdly it's going to be interesting to see how attempts to put proportionate limits on the population of in scope customers for remediation exercises are received so when you look at the SWIFT review that criticizes some of the apparently quite pragmatic limits that were put in place in the IRHP review Uh, And many clients uh, that we're working with are seeing a decreased willingness by the FOS uh, to accept what appear to be proportionate and pragmatic limits. Uh, And I think, again, when one looks at what might happen post the introduction of the consumer duty, I know there is a fair degree of concern from practitioners about the interaction uh, with the FOS in the context of remediation and restitution, uh, despite the FCA's assertion in the various consultation papers that it will work with the FOS to ensure consistency. Finally, we could argue that the FCA should
0: be doing more upfront to ensure that CARTIs have sufficient funds to cover redress, which might become due. And so avoid having to go after the deep pocketed institutions who play a much more remote role in the loss when the firms closest to the problem have failed. And this brings us neatly back to where we started and the FCA's strategy for 2022 to 25. In this, we see an increasing emphasis by the FCA on the fact that those firms that cause harm should pay for it. This means ensuring that fewer firms fail owing redress to consumers, which then has to be funded through industry through the FSCS levy. The FCA wants to see more customers getting redress from the firms that owe them money, and it will be looking at intervening earlier so customers have access to redress before firms fail, as well as improving firms' overall financial resilience. This should reduce the need for the FSCS to step in and reduce the amount of levy funded by firms, which I'm sure would be a welcome development for everyone. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. We hope you have found this review of the FCA's use of its restitution powers useful. If you are interested in reading more of our thoughts about current and upcoming trends in FCA and PRA enforcement work, you can find all our publications on linklaters.com along with a range of other enforcement and financial service focused content. Alternatively, please do contact us or any of your usual linklaters contacts if you'd like to talk about the topics we've covered today in more detail. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.